0: ABC Listen, podcasts, radio, news, music, and
1: more. This podcast is produced on the lands of the Bunurong, Bunwarang peoples of the Eastern Kulin Nation, as well as the Wurundjeri, Gadigal, and Warramai people, and people of the Kenamaluka.
2: If you ask conservationists to describe the Franklin River, they'll say something like this
0: The Franklin River is like a living entity,
3: it has its different moods.
0: It was a wild and wonderful
3: thing. And the water's honey-coloured because it comes out of the button-grass plains. It was exquisite.
2: The Franklin River and Kutakana Cave are considered so precious, so important to all humanity, that they were listed as a World Heritage Site. But Tasmanian Premier Robin Gray didn't see what all the fuss was about and he didn't have much time for the people who were heading out to see the Franklin.
4: You've either got to be uh, superbly fit or mentally ill to go rafting down there. It's the most dangerous occupation.
2: It seemed like he didn't care what a bunch of diplomats in Paris thought about the Franklin River. His government had promised Tasmanians it would build a dam, and that's what it was doing.
4: No scheme in the state's history has received closer and more detailed scrutiny. Hydro is hard to beat. It's cheap, it's clean, and what's more, it's everlasting.
2: The dam would be 27 times the size of Sydney Harbour and flood a quarter of the river.
4: We don't disguise the fact that the new power scheme will be built in a remote and scenic part of Tasmania. We can't shy away from the fact that it will have an impact on the environment. It will, but it certainly won't destroy the southwest.
2: This had all started as a fight about powering a state. Now, the whole issue of the Franklin River was about something way bigger.
4: The Tasmanian government does not see the question of World Heritage Listing solely in the context of the dam. It goes much wider than that. It involves very real questions of the sovereignty of state governments to make decisions about their own territory.
2: We were really hoping to speak to Robin Gray for this series, but he said he didn't have anything to say that he hadn't already said. Robin Gray's style had got him some loyal followers, especially at home. He'd become kind of like a folk hero to a lot of Tasmanians, a leader who represented jobs, a man of his word. But he also had a lot of new enemies.
5: It was a period of high tension. There were some security concerns about the Premier's family.
2: This is Danny Russell. In 1982, he had the job of police protection for Robin Gray, There was a news report saying that there was a $250,000 hit out on Robin Gray's life, and the police were taking it seriously. That's almost a million dollars today.
5: There were police officers at the Gray residence for, I guess, a period of weeks, if not months, sort of round the clock. Everybody that was there was armed.
2: And it was about to get a lot more hectic. The fight for the Franklin was moving from the streets and the media to the river itself... I'm Joe Lauder, and this is Saving the Franklin. In this season of DIG, I'm looking back at the Franklin River protest to find out, in a fight for the environment, what does it take to win? By 1982, the environmental movement was on a roll. Its symbol had become a yellow triangle saying, No dams. It was all over bumper stickers across the country. Activists were adamant that the Franklin needed to be saved, and with it, the sacred Kudakana cave. But it would take more than World Heritage status to protect the river from bulldozers. In this episode, the sleepy little west coast town of Strawn, home to no more than 450 people, will witness an epic showdown. This is episode four. In 1982, as diplomats in Paris were discussing the Franklin River's potential for World Heritage status, back home, the Wilderness Society's movement was blowing up.
4: It was the biggest environmental rally in the country's history. They came from around Australia, hitched from Cairns, drove from Adelaide, flew from Hobart. 15,000 people walking through the streets of Melbourne.
2: But nothing had worked the dam was still going ahead. The movement's leader, Bob Brown, knew they needed to raise the stakes and give the media something fresh.
3: We decided that the ultimate demonstration couldn't be in the city. We wanted nature to speak for itself because that speaks to the people of Australia. So the blockade had to be on site and here we were arranging the most remote protest in national history that was done covertly.
2: He didn't have any problems getting volunteers. There were young people from all around the country who were so inspired that they were packing up their lives and moving to Tasmania to help out. One of them was Cathy Plowman, a young psych nurse from Sydney. I mean, I was working in an
6: environment that was literally sex and drugs and rock and roll, and I didn't relate to any of that. I wasn't into smoking dope. This is where I felt more at home.
2: Sounds like the nurses' parties were, like, pretty loose. <laughs> well, it was psychiatric hospitals in the 80s, yeah. Bob Brown asked Kathy to be one of the coordinators of a massive direct-action protest at the river, a blockade. I just focus on jobs, like we were going to need rubber
6: rafts. So I write to people to say, we're going to want this, but we don't want it now. And by the way, don't tell anyone that we're planning it. But news started to get out.
3: It became more overt and we were determined that nobody would come to the blockade unless they had been through a learning experience in how to deal with anger, to being confronted with the violent workers if necessary, to police arrest, to whatever provocation. You had to remain you cool, calm, collected and peaceful.
2: So they organised protest schools or, as they called them, non-violent direct action training camps. It was inspired by Gandhi as a way to oppose injustices in a moral way, without causing harm. I
5: feel some apprehension, but I feel very confident also that the training in non-violent action, in peaceful direct action, will uh, pull me
2: through a lot. They were put into groups and would literally practice how to react if there's a bulldozer coming towards them, or how to get arrested and not get angry.
3: We then had to make the big move of announcing publicly we were going to resist peacefully this destruction of this living wilderness.
6: He wanted to announce that we were serious about this and he wanted to have the press there and he wanted to engage with Middle Australia. Bob asked me at one stage about when a list for people coming to the blockade and he wanted at the top of the list a hairbrush. And I was thinking, oh, what's he on about? Of course he wanted people properly groomed in case they were in front of a TV camera.
3: And so we invited 50 of our supporters in pearls and suits and ties and we announced to the media who came along that we were going to sit in the forest, and we would stop the dam works.
2: Now, the whole world knew what was coming. More than 2,000 activists would be heading to the West Coast to put their bodies on the line. The Wilderness Society had upped the stakes, so Robin Gray's government did the same. The Parliament changed the trespass laws so anyone caught at the river could be arrested and go to jail for up to six months. See, as much as this was a battle for the river, it was also a battle for the headlines.
4: There's no doubt it makes good news copy. They have unfortunately made some quite inaccurate and misleading statements. And the shame of that is that many well-intentioned people have simply believed what they've been told.
2: Robin Gray also knew what made a good news story. Premier Gray went to Queenstown this week
1: to show solidarity with his new supporters. And in this struggling mining town, Robin Gray is a hero.
2: Three days before the blockade was set to begin, locals poured into the streets of Queenstown to show their support for the dam and for Robin Gray. Everyone in Queenstown knew that the rally was going to eventuate. This is Brian Gardner, the West Coast local who grew up in Queenstown. He stood on the steps of the local post office, watching as the streets filled with pro-dammers and Robin Gray... Our producer, Pia Wersu, spoke to Brian about it.
6: I was quite surprised at the a number that were there. They just kept coming and coming and coming.
2: What did it feel like to be part of that crowd?
6: Optimism. I really thought that there was a chance. And so after Robin Gray had spoken to the crowd, there were some boxing gloves that he put on. What happened? Someone passed him up the gloves and he put them on. By the time I got round to see what was going on, he had them on. I just saw him holding up his fist in a boxer's stance. And what was the idea of the boxing gloves? Like, what was... Just, I, well, I think basically little he was prepared to fight, that he was prepared to fight for the West Coast and to fight, to have the project go ahead. He rallied people and and now, you know, it, it's what people remember.
4: This is the image Robin Gray likes to portray, confident, tough, totally in control. He's a superb grassroots politician, thriving on conflict spoiling for a fight.
2: This image of Robin Gray with his boxing gloves on, ready for a fight, ended up all over the media, just days before the blockade was due to start.
4: We can't allow a situation where a minority is dictating to the majority or putting at risk those people who are lawfully going about their normal work
2: pro dammers felt validated by Robin Gray. And they were losing patience with all these new hippie protesters coming into the West Coast. And what will you do when the conservation groups arrive next week
1: and start the blockade?
2: Well, probably punch the bloody heads in, I reckon. You mean that? Yeah, I reckon. Why would you become violent?
5: Why? Well, they're taking their bread and butter off us, aren't they? We're not allowed to talk to them or anything else, but if
6: they get on our machines and start damaging us, well... There's a minority that are having all the say, and half of those blokes haven't got a job. You've only got to have a look at them. Have you seen a bunch of the greenies that come around here? They're dirty, disreputable-looking lot. Frankly, I don't know why they've got so much to say.
2: The campaigners had their iconic No Dam stickers. Pro dammers plastered bumper stickers on their cars with a clear message. Doze a greenie help fertilise the southwest. We also heard of another slogan: "Keep warm this winter, burn a conservationist." The blockaders had a clear mission: send as many protesters as possible upriver to get in the way of the hydros' work, and thanks to the new trespass laws, get arrested.
0: I seem to be the first greenie in Strawn. Arriving
2: from Hobart, it was wet. All the streets were full of puddles. Jeff Law had also moved down to Tasmania for the campaign. Before that, Jeff was the guy volunteering at the Melbourne branch and was painting eyelashes on Franklin the Platypus at 4am. But things were quite different on the ground in Strawn. Of course, we
0: had our supporters who lived there, but I was sort of the first of the blockade organisers set up there on a kind of semi-permanent basis.
2: I took this same windy car trip to Strawn just like Jeff. It's about 50 k's west of Queenstown and it's this cute little harbour town with great seafood.
0: I got to know some of the local people and got to realise that this was a very close-knit community that was about to get disrupted in a very, very big way.
2: How did you feel about that? Did you feel somewhat conflicted? I didn't feel conflicted
0: but I did feel... I suppose, a bit of a sense of regret or guilt or something that this little community was about to suffer
2: these convulsions. The blockade was being coordinated out of Strawn and there was some local support for the protesters there, definitely more than in Queenstown, like a family who worked with the protesters to take them on their boats up to the blockade. So there were divisions amongst the locals too. As the blockade got closer, supplies were being sent on boats from Strawn 50 Ks upriver.
0: There would be lines of people forming and crates of oranges and potatoes and bags of rice and radio equipment and, you know, rubber rafts and paddles and tarps and tents and cooking equipment being loaded onto this boat. You know, it, it was, um, you know, a build up of emotion.
1: The new tourists, the press, the protesters and the sightseers had filled the camping grounds, the hotel and the motels.
0: Once the mainland media had arrived, a friendly journalist came up to me and he said, "Geez, mate, all these mainland media,
2: they're not here for the rivers, mate. They're here for blood. Strawn was now swarming with people. As many as 300 police. Nearly a third of all the cops in the state had also gone to Strawn. Then finally, December 14 arrived, the first day of the blockade. Protesters snuck upriver by boat and sat peacefully on the land that was controlled by the hydro, right where the dam would go.
4: Groups of protesters,
7: apparently having hidden themselves in the dense rainforest, emerged to occupy HEC work areas singing songs and chanting anti dam slogans, the blockaders took to the bush, which they claim faces immediate threat from AGC chainsaws and bulldozers.
0: Before people even had a chance to block any work or to peacefully confront any workers, they were being arrested by the police.
2: Well, OK, so they're going to the upriver camp and then they're just being arrested for being on the hydro land and then they're taken back on the police boats...
0: Yeah, it was all happening uh, in front of the TV cameras. And in the meantime, we'd tried to work out what was going on through our radio communications with Upriver, which was still having teething problems.
5: And you are trespassing on that
6: land. If you do not move immediately, you will be arrested.
0: And then finally, late in the afternoon... Um, some very sunburnt journalists got off the boat and they, they were uh, on a mission, they had stories to file and we
2: were asking them, what happened, what happened? When did you get a sense about how that day had gone?
0: We knew it had been a success once we heard people were being arrested.
1: When the police boat arrived with the first of the arrested protesters, the conservation forces swarmed onto the main wharf to meet them and the media followed.
0: Later that evening, we saw some of the coverage, and you know, it looked magnificent because of the backdrop of the Gordon River and the Franklin River and those rainforests. The deep greens contrasting with all of this colour and movement on the river. The yellow of the rubber rafts, the media boats, the hydro boats, the police boats. There was a sense of exhilaration. The adrenaline kept us all going. Until well into the night, and then at 11:30 p.m. in the hubbub of this strawn office, which is still full of journalists and volunteers and Wilderness Society staff people, suddenly there was a shout: "Can I have your attention, please? Southwest Tasmania is now listed as World Heritage." And he's holding the phone in his hand, with the message coming through from Paris, and so an almighty cheer breaks out.
2: And that's how the day ended. Day one was a huge success for the blockaders and it was beamed into living rooms on colour TVs all around the country. In total, 53 people were arrested. But this was just the beginning. There were already 150 hydro workers on the job. Not even the World Heritage listing would stop their progress. It would be a long and gruelling few weeks or even months. All of us that were there for the
7: long haul were putting in every part of ourselves to stop the dam. We were living a very primal life. So our emotions were very highly
2: connected to what happened to this place. Lisa Yates and her friends had come all the way from northern New South Wales for the blockade. Lisa told producer Pia that she'd left her young son behind. She was ready to make huge sacrifices for the river.
7: We were living on the edge of nothing, day after day, living in very extreme weather, no hot water, no no showers. Can you describe what the upriver camp was like? We had the central area. The communication shed was moored and that was like our jetty. And from there, there were steps rising up the bank to a level area that was nestled under some giant, beautiful old myrtles with a big log at the back that sort of made an enclosed area which was covered so that we could sit around and meet and eat together.
6: And so who did like the cooking?
7: There was a group of people that undertook to cook for us all because when you came back from being out all day in the rain... Um, eating dry biscuits and instant food and, and cheese was not going to do.
6: And so how did the camp function in terms of, like, planning a strategy? Where did where did that actually happen?
7: We had a covered area and we'd improvised shelves and we had a little drum that we could have a fire in. We were doing a lot of the strategic planning and that from there and there would be little gatherings of tents of different affinity groups or individuals, and there were up to 200 people nestled under ferny logs. It was pretty leachy, not a lot of sunlight, but it was exquisite.
6: Given that you were in such a remote location for all those months, how did you get the news about what impact all of this, the blockade, was actually having?
7: Someone would listen to the six o'clock news on the shortwave radio and then while we were all gathered for the meal or the meeting for that night, she'd come in and we'd all go... Vale d- day. Day. Why, day. Day and, ..and here is the news. And she'd start and read us the news for the day. <laughs> That's the only way we knew what was happening at all, if we'd made the news or not.
2: The police camp was set up on the opposite side of the river to the protesters.
1: As well as the Greenies and the media, there were, of course, the police. Indeed, the police were everywhere. They seemed as numerous as the protesters. From the air, the whites of the policemen's hats were the most visible presence on the river.
2: At night, they'd hear animals and birds, the wind or rain in the trees, and occasionally the protesters singing in the night. Young copper Danny Russell, who you met earlier, had been sent in from Launceston.
5: You could describe my personal leanings as being towards the conservation side of things.
2: Danny had to put his personal feelings aside and get on with the job, arresting protesters.
5: I remember running through the bush and jumping over trees and eventually arresting people and marching them back to the river. I'm pretty confident the vast majority of people that we did manage to arrest had intended to be arrested, but often not before they'd let us a bit of a merry dance. There were no cells, no secure holding area. We just had a designated area on the ground, which was designated by a piece of rope, like thick rope that was just laid in a circle in as big an area as we could arrange. We would take them to the designated holding area and we would explain that Or if they stepped outside that formal holding area, they potentially are committing the criminal offence of escape from lawful custody.
2: Can you imagine being arrested and then being sent to a naughty corner that was fenced off by a piece of rope deep in a rainforest? At this point, for the most part, things were pretty relaxed between the protesters and the police. Danny remembers, years later, someone running up to him on the street and giving him a big hug, saying... You're my arresting officer. But as the weeks passed, it started to become more hostile. Like one cold day in January when a big group of arrested protesters were forced to wait all day in the rain. A doctor was brought in to check them out and 21 of them were treated for hypothermia. Some even had to go to hospital. The police minister was getting sick of the antics of the protesters. When you get
1: a situation where ropes are being strung across the river to try and entangle the craft, then you get to a real problem. We're not going to allow guerrilla tactics to endanger
2: people's lives. And so is Premier Robin Gray.
4: People need to understand that that is what this obstruction, this law-breaking group of people is doing to Tasmania. I would simply urge again those conservationists who are proposing to go into the area and uh, are uh, uh, risking the possibility of a confrontation. Please withdraw. It's about time I called it off.
2: As the days went on, the protesters got grubbier and grubbier. Everyday Australians, school teachers, doctors, uni students, have been taking time out of their summer to fly to Tassie and get arrested. At the same time, Aboriginal Tasmanians were making their own trips to the river, visiting the newly rediscovered cave where their ancestors had cooked and slept during the last ice age. Safe to say, this was the busiest the Franklin River had been since colonisation. And the plan of choking up the local prison was working.
1: Jail authorities have run out of beds and uniforms, and many of the greenies are sleeping on mattresses on the floor.
2: Then, early in the morning on the 13th of January, 1983, with the dawn birds still chorusing, Jeff Law was woken suddenly in his room in Strawn.
0: You have to get up. The window's been smashed and the phone lines have been cut and there's been an assault. There's a young man who's got a bandage round his head because he'd been sleeping on the floor of the info centre, been hit by the rock that came flying through the window, So we scramble into the info centre, we learn that the blockade camp, which is a kilometre and a half down the road, has been blocked off by the police. There are police all over the place and suddenly down the road there's a bulldozer and it's on a loader and it's making its slow, halting way through the gloom and the
2: drizzle Until now, the bulldozers had only been clearing the access road at the top of the dam. But this dozer was going to clear the rainforest where the protesters were, not far from Kutakana Cave, and the police were helping the hydro. A campaigner told us that a police officer admitted that they'd cut the phone lines at the Wilderness Society office, so word couldn't get out about the dozer arriving. The only way to get the dozer upriver was by putting it on a barge. The cops were keeping Jeff and the campaigners away as it was loaded down at the wharf. I remember just shouting out, Police state, police state. I was just shocked
0: by the whole thing. We hadn't expected such a concerted action on the part of all of the authorities working in tandem to ensure that this huge bit of machinery would make its way upriver. But we still tried to do something about it, to try to blockade it. But then people just started getting arrested by the police and I eventually had to dive into the water fully clothed so as not to be
2: arrested. The dozer was loaded. Police officer Danny Russell was told, you're going on the barge. Bulldozers aren't designed to float, so seeing
5: one on the water was a little bit surreal. It was a little bit incongruous, you know, just this floating bulldozer. It's just, that's not where they're meant to be. I can
2: remember thinking, is this going to work? The media jumped on boats and followed the barge upriver. The blockaders were ready. We had four hours warning. We
5: also knew that if that bulldozer came through, that was really the end. There's this sense of anticipation around any corner. There might be a flotilla of canoes and rubber duckies. That whole idea of
7: just trying to get a row of duckies to hold a line against a really fast-flowing river and that all we really had was our bodies. That's all we had. That's all we ever had. We were there that could be filmed and recorded while the media's coming up to observe what's going
5: to happen. It seemed like we travelled in isolation and, and quiet and then suddenly surrounded by... Activity. There were all sorts of craft on the river. There was just a continual chain of of other vessels. So we round the corner. Butler's Island is covered in protesters just in in, you know coloured Japaras and raincoats. There were um, ropes and cables that had great big protest signs hanging off. Canoes and rubber duckies on the river, forming a barrier across the river between the channel that the barge and and the boat were going to go.
7: So there we were. We're singing our little hearts out. We can see the fishing boat towing the barge coming. All the people in the duckies down below are scrambling to hold the line full on, absolutely full on. And then the boat goes through.
5: It was pretty easily breached.
7: The boat broke the ducky line. there's just mayhem happening.
5: I would have been singing my heart out or probably screaming at that point. There was the sounds of, of sounds of the towing vessel, but above that, cat calls, hoots, chanting. When the
7: bulldozer was coming off the barge, We are literally screaming and wishing, with all our wishes, that it would tip into the water. And we're trying, and we're all screaming, tip, 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 tip. And you see it teeters. It does teeter.
5: I'd certainly remember the sound of diesel engine and the smell of the diesel, and the sound of trees and twigs snapping as it's moved around. That's a pretty enduring kind of memory. As much as dozers don't belong on barges, it was also quite an incongruous sight to see a dozer in that pristine riverbank environment, bright yellow, uh, in amongst that green foliage. For protesters who had an empathy and a care for that area, that must have been a really confronting sight.
7: I have these images that are to this day still traumatic for me. The sight of a bulldozer was the sight of the enemy. You know, that's the worst thing that can happen to a forest, is to have a bulldozer in it. And the fact that no-one got injured, no-one died, is mind-boggling, absolutely mind-boggling. We nearly got our way. It was the end of what we had known and the beginning of the atrocious decimation of this... Exquisite place. The whole world is watching the wilderness war But we don't have to ask What are we fighting for? We are here for the
1: river
3: Well, there was complete pandemonium this morning. It's a complete overreaction to uh, what has been an ongoing and determined peaceful protest against the bulldozer.
2: The bulldozer was loaded off the barge into that dense rainforest and its only way through it was for it to just plough down trees. And this moment, it's a turning point in the whole fight over the Franklin River.
1: We are here for...
2: The physical destruction of the environment and the terrifying moment the bulldozer barge ploughed through a peaceful protest, it changed the game. Violence was in the air and things were going to get uglier before they got better.
3: And they drew a line and said, if you step outside of that line, Brown, we'll bash your bloody brains
6: out. People were coming in, with supposedly open eyes, but with closed minds. It's sad to say this, but a lot of the
5: tensions in the community were dealt with with violence. I regret some of my actions. I always look back and I think, how could I have done that?
4: The choice is between cheap electricity with enormous environmental costs or a reasonably priced electricity... For the preservation of your
2: great assets. This series is reported and hosted by me, Joe Lauder. Pia Wersu is our producer and reporter. Bethany Atkinson Quinton is our supervising producer. Tynan King is our researcher. Our executive producer is Claire Rawlinson. Engineering by John Jacobs, and our original theme music by Casey Holford. Special thanks to Tim Roxburgh. Also, thank you to the Wilderness Society for their archival support. If you're enjoying Saving the Franklin, you should check out the ABC podcast Background Briefing. It's full of bold narrative journalism, and their reporters uncover the hidden stories at the heart of Australia's biggest issues. Here's a short clip. Let's be honest. We all keep secrets. Secrets to protect others or ourselves.
4: You put your recording on, that's fine.
2: Secrets that can cost lives or save them. I don't
3: mind if you name me. Really? Yeah. That's incredibly brave. If
2: you're a journalist and someone tells you a secret, it's called a background briefing. And that's what we're giving you every week in your podcast feed. Background briefing. Award-winning investigative journalism for your ears. That's Background Briefing. Search for it now or find it in the ABC Listen app.